0: My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in week four of our Theology of Sex Plus series. And this uh, week and next week, we're taking a look at the topic of homosexuality. So in approaching this and trying to teach on this, it feels like a little bit of a game of operation. If you remember the kids game, you've got the tweezers. And you got to, the guy that's got all the body parts, you got to get in there and get his rib out without touching the sides, because if you touch the sides, it buzzes. And as a kid, I was terrible at that game. I would make a terrible surgeon. And you just, at any given point, you move left, right, front, center. If you move around too far, you're gonna actually hit something and it's gonna buzz. And that's kind of what this feels like, because there's a few different things that play into this that make this difficult to teach on. The, the first is, is what Chet was walking us through last week that uh, sexuality has become identity and that this uh, uh, has risen to the place of idolatry, so much so that we worship this in the place of God. And if anyone uh, speaks about something that's at the core of your being, at the core of your identity, that's considered harmful or destructive, and that makes that difficult to talk about. What's also difficult here is that many of us have family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, people we love that identifies LGBTQ+. And many of them are wonderful, kind, loving, hardworking people. So it's not a neutral subject that we talk about. Another thing that makes this difficult is that there's whole denominations in the West that have shifted on truth in this area, that have failed to speak the truth I came out of the United Methodist Church, that's where I became a Christian, and that denomination has shifted. So has the ELCA Lutheran Church, so has the Episcopalian Church, so has the PCUSA Church. And that also makes this difficult. What also makes this difficult is that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but there are actual, genuine, Jesus-loving Christians who have spoken harshly about this. So we don't approach this subject neutrally, and it feels like if wherever you move in this, you're going to hit the edges and you're going to hit the buzzer. So because all of that is true, we want to take two weeks to be able to walk through this together. And this first sermon, we're just going to ask the question: What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible have to say about the subject matter of homosexuality? And we're going to dive deep into the text. A lot of this is going to be super laborious. It's going to be in deep into the text to see what does the Bible have to say about this, especially because in the West, there's been a shift amongst some denominations that have tried to reinterpret the Bible to say something that I would argue it doesn't say. And I want to take those arguments seriously and look at what the Bible has to say about this. Next week will be far more practical, be far, far more applicational, but I want us to look deeply into the text this week. And I want to end with showing why I believe that our church can be a, a wonderful and safe place to be able to figure this out, to be able to discuss this, to be able to work through any type of sexual identity and brokenness. So let me pray and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good word that we have for the scriptures for your kindness, and for the work of the Holy Spirit. No doubt, there's lots of things swirling in our souls this morning as we approach your word. May you help us be present. May you help us listen. May we respond as you desire, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been in Genesis 1 and 2 pretty much every week, and this week is no different. We won't be in it very long, but Genesis 1 and 2 kind of establish What is the biblical idea for gender and for sex? And then in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. So we've looked at this multiple weeks, but it's important to read that out the gate because that is the establishment of biblical romantic love and romantic sex. One man... One woman in the confines of marriage and the rest of the Bible upholds this picture. From Genesis to Revelation, throughout the Old Testament, Jesus in multiple places in Mark 10 and Matthew 19 highlights this as the biblical reality for marriage, romantic love, and sexual union. So that's the first picture we get out of the gate in the scriptures. And then when you flip a few pages you'll inevitably get to Genesis 19. And that is going to be the first mentioning of homosexuality in the Bible. So in Genesis 19, God has determined to bring judgment upon two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. He sends two angels to really inspect the city to see if it's worth redeeming and not worth judgment. He gets there. Abraham's nephew Lot is there. Lot takes him into his house really quickly because he knows what this city is like. And these two foreigners, he doesn't want them to be harmed. So he takes him to his house. And at nightfall, the men of the city surround the house. And you pick up in verse 4, it says But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, that know them is a biblical euphemism throughout the Bible for sex, that we may know them sexually. This happens. The angels strike the man with blindness, tell Lot and his family, get out of the city now. We're going to destroy it. They leave and then the city is destroyed. And these infamous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, become really the prime examples of both wickedness and judgment throughout the Bible. You can't read the rest of the Bible and not see that. It happens in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Amos, Zephaniah. Jesus in multiple places mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, bringing that type of judgment to mind, that these cities are synonymous with sin and judgment. So the question is, why are these cities known for sin and judgment? And we get a few biblical reasons. I'll point to the first one, Ezekiel sixteen forty-nine. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And what we see there is that like most depraved cities and most depraved cultures, there was excess the pride of life enjoying the riches getting fat and not caring for the poor and maybe even building your wealth off of the poor which is wickedness i mean you cannot read the prophets you cannot read the gospels without seeing that the god despises that type of disregard for the poor and the needy now in an attempt to legitimize same-sex relationships, some have attempted to say that that's all was wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. That Genesis 19 and the picture of judgment there is only for this, that social justice is the only reason that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now, it's certainly clear from the text that injustice was a major part of their depravity and that is true. But what's been understood for thousands of years, from Jews into Christianity, what has been understood for thousands of years is that these cities were not only destroyed for the prideful, greedy life that they lived, but also for the promiscuity and specifically the homosexuality that was prevalent that these cities were known for. That's clear when you read the text. That's clear outside of the text. There are extra biblical resources, extra biblical historical documents in Second Temple Judaism. So the period of time between when the last scriptures were written around 500 BC to the time when Jesus came. You can look at Second Temple Judaism and see some of the writings that describe this as a a universally understood truth that Jews understood. One of those is the Testament of Naphtali. It says, do not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature. And the order of nature there is the design for sex with men and women. They departed from that, referencing the judgment that fell upon them. In the Testament of Benjamin, another extra-biblical historical document, it says, From the words of Enoch the righteous, I tell you that you will be sexually promiscuous like the promiscuity of the Sodomites and will perish. Again, in the book of Jubilee, it says... And in this month, the Lord carried out the judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it goes on to say that they were terrible and very sinful and have defiled themselves and committed fornication and, and uncleanness over the earth. Now, we don't look at those sources as authoritative, like the scriptures. They don't have an authority. But what they helped describe was it was universally understood that these cities were known for that type of sexual promiscuity. I mean, you get to the, some of the contemporary writers of the Bible, So some of the contemporaries alongside the Bible, Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Philo, a philosopher. You can even go into their writings and see that at the time of Jesus, it was universally understood that this was a part of Sodom's downfall. Now, that's important because what also happens with Genesis 19 is people seek to reinterpret this and say that what was really happening with what we read is not the type of consensual, loving, same-sex relationships we have now, that what was actually being articulated was rape. And that's the real problem. And while that that seems to be the logical conclusion of what was going to happen if those angels did not step in, those cities were known for this. It was universally understood at the time. And that's important to articulate. And that's helpful to understand, especially when the book of Jude at the end of the Bible comes along, and references Sodom and Gomorrah in the same way that a lot of other writings do. In the book of Jude, near the end of the Bible, in verse seven, it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is doing what some of those other resources outside the Bible are doing. Jude's made argument, in the book of Jude. We were in this book about a year ago. His main argument is against false teachers, and the judgment of heretical false teachers that had come into the church. But in his writing against false teachers, he uses something that was obvious to Jews for centuries and was also obvious to the Christians who were receiving this letter. And he mentions, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And what he's getting at there is that there's a natural design for sex that we see very clearly in Genesis 1 and 2. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah rejected that for an unnatural desire. And it ended up in their judgment. And he categorizes that with sexual immorality. And that's also very important because sexual immorality is really a broad term in the scriptures. It's kind of a a bucket for all types of sexual sin and sexual brokenness. And it's important to understand that because a lot of times what you'll hear in rebuttal to some of this is that skeptics will say, but Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. He never talked about this once. Why do you talk about it? And what's important to understand is that Jesus did speak about sexual immorality in multiple places which absolutely, biblically and theologically includes homosexuality. And the reason why Jesus doesn't explicitly name homosexuality has to do with his ministry context. Jesus ministered the majority of his time in Galilee. And Galilee was not a region that was known for homosexuality at all historically. Now, the reason why it shows up more than Paul's letters is because Paul is writing to Greco-Roman cities, all over Asia Minor and Rome, and those cities were known for homosexuality. But it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to address something that wasn't in his immediate ministry context. But he does address sexual immorality, and that absolutely includes homosexuality. So Jude is making a bigger point about judgment, but he references something that was obvious, obvious to the Christians at the time, and that is that pursuing same-sex attraction is sin. And... Next week, we'll get more into this. There's a difference between same-sex attraction, same-sex desires, and pursuing those. One is in the temptation arena. The other one is pursuing rebellious sin. But we'll get into more of that next week. The church needed to understand this, but also the people of Israel needed to understand the morality of this. Which is what is clear when you get to the book of Leviticus in chapter 18 and chapter 20. And there are two verses in eighteen twenty-two and twenty-thirteen that show this to be prohibited. In verse twenty-two of eighteen, it says, "You shall not lie with a male as with a woman; it is an abomination." An abomination is just—it's a, a—it's an aggressive word for God. Despises this sin; He finds it detestable to Him. It's often applied to idolatry. It's often applied to corrupt money practices and greed, but it's also applied to homosexuality in the book of Leviticus. And then in verse 13 of chapter 20, it says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, the language here is intentional. If you read all of Leviticus 18 and all of Leviticus 20, and you read those chapters, you're going to see man, the word man, show up over and over and over again. But in these two verses, another word shows up, male and that's the Hebrew word zakar. And when that word shows up, it draws the reader's mind back to Genesis 1, because that's creation, distinction language, male and female, showing this goes against the very design for sex. Now, a common objection to even using the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, to show that this prohibits pursuing same-sex relations is that the New Testament clearly teaches we don't follow the law. So a popular rebuttal that I've heard over and over again is, okay, well, if you think that's true, then why are you wearing a shirt with two types of fabric in it? And why do you eat pork? You're a hypocrite. Read your Bible. Now, I've always actually found that retort pretty clever. If I was not a Christian, I would probably use it because it ends an argument pretty quickly because I'll be honest, a lot of Christians don't know their Bibles like they should. But you've got to do something with that. That's, that's a fair critique. They are correct. We don't look to the book of Leviticus for our understanding. We don't follow the law. That's, we, didn't do this like, we don't do this like the Jews do. So why even mention it? When clearly as you walk through ex, we walked through Exodus over the last year, we said over and over again, we live in the new covenant of Christ. We're not under the law. It's helpful to mention these two verses for three reasons. First, it clearly shows the Jewish people believed this was sin. It's unmistakable. Even, even scholars that, that seek to legitimize same-sex relationships will say, no, it's very clear that in Judaism they understood this to be sinful. Second, the text is talking about consensual homosexual sex. This is not rape. This is not power imbalance. This is talking about consensual homosexual relations. Third, the Hebrew word used in these passages in Leviticus 18 and 20, becomes central to interpreting two passages in the New Testament. And we're going to go there now. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Now, these, like other writings of Paul, other parts of the scripture, it's, a, it's got a big list of sins. And the middle of this is homosexuality. So, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Then in first Timothy again. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understand this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, in one Corinthians six, homosexuality is translated from two Greek words, malakoi, and arsinoikoi time. So, two Greek words. In one Timothy one, it just uses arsinoikoi time. Now, this is why this is really important. I know we're in the weeds, you guys, but this is it's really important to understand this. When you are trying to understand Greek and Hebrew and how it's used, you have to look at the immediate context of the the Bible book that it's written in, the context of its use in other books of the Bible. And then you look outside the Bible at other Greek and Hebrew historical documents to see how that word is being used. And when you do a Greek word study on arsenikoitai, what you will see is there's not one single use outside the Bible. You cannot find one Greek historical document that uses this word nowhere. Which begs the question, okay then, what does it mean? When you break it apart, you have arsen and Koite. It literally means "better's of men. But more importantly, when you look at Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and you look at what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, if you look at that, you're going to see that in Leviticus and the Greek translation, when it talks about homosexuality, the word for it is arsenos and "koiten," which means Paul made up a word. That's what he did. He took the language of Leviticus, brought it into First Corinthians and Timothy, put it together, oursinecoi time. And anyone who was familiar with the Old Testament, who was receiving those letters would have immediately understood what he was doing, that he was bringing in the morality of, the holy, of that part of the Holiness code and the book of Leviticus to show this is something that should not be practiced. And listen, even, even the scholars that believe that homosexuality is a legitimate form of love and sex, they're going to agree on that point and say, yeah, you can't get around it. It's very clear that's what Paul is doing. And some of them will go on to say, but we know better now. And they appeal to an authority of our own authority, not the authority of the scriptures. But it's almost universally understood that's exactly what Paul is doing. Now, that brings us to what I think is the most definitive text. In the Bible on homosexuality, and that is the book of Romans, chapter 1. We were here last week, and we're going to be here again. Starting in verse 24, it says Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we looked at this last week, that we as humanity exchange the truth about God for a lie, that we worship created things, we worship idols and the place of God. And when we reject God for created things, God says, continue in your rebellion. And he gives us in, and we pursue that all the way to an exchange of the natural design of sex for the unnatural use of sex and homosexuality. And that's clear, starting in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. See that, that when you follow idolatry and are given into your sexual pursuits, it will ultimately result in this, women exchanging the natural design of sex for unnatural, contrary to nature sex. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, the reason why this text is so important, especially in this current context, is because one of the most popular arguments that tries to legitimize homosexuality from the Bible is an argument that says that what's really happening in the New Testament, what's really happening in the New Testament is not a condemnation of the committed and loving same-sex relationships that we see nowadays. What's being condemned is pederasty. And pederasty, which is very prevalent in the Roman Empire. Men sleeping with teenage boys. It's all over the Greco-Roman Empire. It was a common practice. And what's argued is, is that what's really being condemned is that type of abuse, but not the loving, committed, same-sex relationships we have now. And that argument is indefensible in light of Romans 1. First off, it's indefensible for other reasons that I won't get into, but Romans 1 is clear because there is not one historical example of pederasty being practiced by women. You cannot find it. In the Roman Empire, older women did not sleep with teenage girls. That did not happen. So that's not what's being condemned here at all. It's a broad condemnation of homosexuality, not a specific condemnation of a type of homosexuality. So it's clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The teaching is consistent. That homosexuality is against the very design for sex, which is... Man, woman, in the confines of marriage. Biblically, there are no same-sex relationships that honor God. And there's not one example of a same-sex relationship in the Bible that's seen as honorable. Now, if you want to argue that there is no God, if if you want to be an atheist and argue that there is no God and that there's no purpose, there's no such thing as meaning, that this is all the result of cosmic chance and we're all creating what we want in front of us and nothing really matters. So yeah, homosexuality should be fair game. It happens in nature, right? Like what, if you, if you wanna make that argument that because there's no purpose and no meaning and there's no God, I think you can be intellectually consistent and do that. I would want to argue with you about some other things. This will be one of the last things I wanna talk about I wanna walk you through the teleological argument to help you see that it's mathematically impossible to believe that this is all the result of cosmic chance. But you can be intellectually consistent and be an atheist and argue for this, but you cannot argue that there is a Christian God that condones homosexuality. It is impossible, you cannot do it. It is intellectually inconsistent to do so. And that's very important to establish. I know it took a lot to get here, but that's very important to establish out the gate so that we can understand and engage with some of the different arguments that are made in our culture. The Bible does not condone this. So that's a lot. And I, I hear the critique of those who don't follow Christ, for those don't... I, I, he, I hear the critique when they say that what you're saying is too much. To tell someone that they would have to abstain from their desires to pursue chastity, to not give in to what feels normal and right to them, that's wrong. Like I've, I've heard the arguments, sexual desire is too strong And to tell someone that they can't engage in this is harmful. I had a psychology professor in college who called out all the Christians in the room, and he called out all the Christians in the room, and he just he said, "Y'all don't get it. Sexual drive is too strong of a psychological drive." To tell someone that they can't pursue this is wrong. I've heard that argument. That if you understood, if you understood what they were going through, if you understood the experience, if you understood this and how hard it is, you wouldn't tell someone not to pursue this, and you certainly wouldn't speak so harshly about them. That critique has weighed heavily upon me for years. And that critique has weighed heavily upon me the last couple of months. And that's when God started to lead me to tell you a bit of my own story. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. And about a year after following Christ, I came to grips with the reality that I didn't just struggle with sinful heterosexual lusts, but that I also struggled with sinful same-sex attraction. And at 18 years old, as a new Christian, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what to, to do with this reality that I could no longer deny. Now, when I say that I struggle with same-sex attraction, that a lot of people have theories on about how all this comes about. Some will say, "Well, they must have been the result of abuse growing up, or this must have been—you uh, know, must have had an overbearing mother," which is not true, or that maybe you were were born this way. I'll get into more of the nuance of that next week, but I can speak very practically from my own experience where I think this began, because it's not something I knew when I was seven. It began and it kind of formed through years of internet pornography. So I came of age, probably at the worst time to come of age. So when I was... uh, In the fourth grade, we got our first computer in the house. When I was in the fifth grade, we got dial-up internet. When I was in the sixth grade, we got broadband internet. It happened so quickly. And if you're around my age, I'm 35. If you're around my age, 30 to 40 years old, and you're a guy, you probably have the exact same story. I've hardly met any guy that doesn't have this story. But at 10 years old, I started to look at pornography until I was 18 years old when God freed me from it. And in that time period, something just shifted in my sinful nature. And in high school, I started to notice this, this creeping desire. And I was confused. This was in the mid-early 2000s. And I didn't know what to, I mean, back then, in South Carolina, no one was talking about LGBT stuff. That wasn't even a phrase that was thrown around in this area. And I was confused. I didn't know what to do with this, that I had this heterosexual temptations and I like girls but I also had the same sex attraction attraction that was lingering and I didn't know what to do with that and then I became a Christian and I started to understand what the Bible says on this and I started to understand sin and I was like okay by the time I was about a freshman in college I was like I can't deny this anymore this is a reality but I'm never going to talk about it at that point I felt called to ministry I felt called to be a pastor and i I I had some, maybe I had some unbiblical ideas of what that would mean if people found out about this, but I'll say very clearly, there's a difference between same-sex attraction and pursuing it. One is temptation, one is disqualifying, but I didn't know what to do with it, and I was scared, and to be honest, i have been around Christians long enough to hear some very harsh language, I heard the word "fag" so many times that I was like, I'm not talking to anyone about this ever. And that was my goal. And for the next few years, I continued to just stay quiet, to never say anything. And then going into my senior year, the summer before my senior year, I was a part of a college ministry. And in this college ministry, I was leading, discipling a a room full of guys and we were, I was teaching them the Bible and I taught them 1 John chapter one, verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us of all sin. Same thing I've taught here. And I taught them that and I watched each one of them confess sin and it was beautiful and I felt like a hypocrite and I could not live under the weight of that hypocrisy any longer. I could not preach and not practice. I couldn't do it. And I said, if I'm going to believe the gospel and I'm going to believe this, I'm actually going to believe what I'm saying. And that is when I began to finally walk in the light. And I found a dear brother, and I, I told him. It's the first person I talked to. I told him. And he just, he said, thank you so much for telling me. And he gave me the gospel, and he gave me grace. He pointed me to Jesus. And then later that summer, I talked to two other guys, two brothers. In Christ, and I listened to one of them after I got done telling me this, I telling him this, I listened to one of them articulate almost the exact same story that I have. And I realized I'm not alone. And I continued to walk in the light. I continued to walk with other Christians. I saw God use this. I got the disciple guys where this is exclusively was their struggle. And as I started to walk with other brothers in Christ. I was talking with my mentor back home. Andy told him this. He acted like a Christian. In fact, i would just gone to say this. Everyone I've ever talked about this has acted like a Christian. It's, the church is a wonderful place to figure this out. And I talked to Andy, and Andy said, Hey, man, I, I'm proud of you, but you're getting serious with Anna, and you're going to have to tell her before you get engaged. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> I don't like that. But I, I listened to his counsel and obeyed it, and I, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. In the first semester, towards the end of senior year, I sat Anna down, and I looked at her, and for 20 minutes, through tears, stumbling all over my words, I just said, I have begged God to take this, and he hasn't. And that might be the case for the rest of my life. I may struggle with same-sex attraction for the rest of my life. And if you marry me, you need to know that. And they had been preparing me for this and and talking like, listen, she might need some time. She might need a couple of weeks. That's fine. It's a lot to absorb. And she was patient. She let me finish. And when I got done, she looked at me. She said, I love you. And I want to marry you. This does not keep me from wanting to marry you, and we'll have to talk about it, but I love you and I'm in and I put a ring on it two weeks later <laughs> Find you someone whom you can bear your soul to who doesn't flinch, who acts like a christian That's- and that's, that's for romantic love. But that's also for Christian friendship that where you can bear your soul and they don't flinch for a moment. That's what Christians are supposed to do. And over the years, I've continued to walk in the light, never publicly. Moved to Louisville, went to seminary, was part of a church up there, walked with other Christians there. Had accountability, had pastors who knew about this. Came back down here same thing here with our pastors, people I've been in community group with, people I've been in recovery groups with, have continued to walk in the light. And the church is a wonderful place to do that. But when people say, "If you only knew what it was like," I do. I do know what it's like. I know what it's like to beg God to take it away, to plead with God to take it away. If I'm honest, that was the genesis, that was the beginning of why I wrote, I trust you, Lord. That came right out, that first verse comes directly out of this. When I wrote, I feel the stain of darkness and my sin, a head and voice recounting all my shame. I know what it's like to feel that shame. I know what it's like to have the enemy come in and whisper things, recounting it. I've confessed his work and glory, the power of his name, but the path to life seems like it has no end. I've confessed the gospel. I pray in the name of Jesus, take it. And he said, no. And the path to eternity just feels so long. I know what that's like. You You know who else knew what that was like? The apostle Paul. Paul, for different reasons, understood this. He knew what it was like to beg God to beg Jesus to take something away. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn is for Paul. We don't know if it's something physical or it's something spiritual, if it's sin. We don't know what it is, but it's afflicting him. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He pleads. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to plead and ask God, Jesus, this is sin. Will you take it? Will you take it? Will you take it? And Paul is pleading with the Lord. He's pleading with Christ. And this is what Jesus says in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness pleaded with Jesus. You know what he said? My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that's why I'm doing this today. This isn't walking in the light. I've done that for over a decade. But a couple of months ago I was in a doctoral class and I just started to God started to just press into this. And what he was saying was, it's time. It's time for my power made perfect in your weakness. And I was like, uh-uh. I went home and told Anna. She's like, uh-uh. But we prayed for weeks and realized this is exactly what God wants to do, that it is time. We had fears wrapped in all of this. Some of them completely irrational. Some of them more based in reality. Some of our biggest fears was our kids. This is not something they need to know about. And we certainly didn't want anyone saying anything harsh or ugly, or we didn't want any other kids in the church that might go up and say something to them. We'll have the conversations one day when they're ready. But we were obedient to the Lord. We just said, it's time. And I think it's time for a few reasons. The first is that some of you struggle with same-sex attraction, and you aren't walking in the light some of you struggle with same-sex desires and and you're living in darkness and you're not alone you're not alone some of you are struggling with this maybe you're looking at pornography maybe you're even thinking about engaging in same-sex relationships and i want to tell you that my door is open my door is open to talk you're not alone And there are other Christians in our church that struggle with this. And a few of them have given me their names and taken a brave step so that you can go and talk to them too. But Katie Freeman, my sister, Jordan Surratt, my brother, also know what it's like to struggle with same-sex attraction and choose Jesus is better. You're not alone. We're ready for you. We're ready to talk, to cry. But you've got to take a leap of faith and you've got to step into the light. The second reason is that there are people in this city that are pursuing same sex desires, and it is never going to satisfy them. It's never going to satisfy them. I don't know what's going to happen with this sermon, it's going to go online. I have no idea. About a month ago, a brother of mine said, Just, you need to stop worrying about this. And I made a decision right then and there that I was going to stop worrying about it. I don't know what's going to happen. But let me tell you something. We're in Casey. I don't know if you noticed that Casey's becoming a more gay-friendly part of town. You can go up and down the avenues and you can see pride flags. And at this church gets to be a hospital for the broken, which is what Jesus wants his church to be. If it gets to be a hospital for those who are working through sexual brokenness and they want to come in here and figure this out together, praise Jesus. That's what our church should be. And that's what our church is. Doesn't matter what you struggle with, this church is a safe place to be able to figure this out together. To be able to expose sin and experience the goodness of his grace and his mercy and his kindness and His forgiveness this church is a wonderful place to be to figure that out together no matter what you are struggling with but if you are struggling with same-sex attraction i want you to hear something very clearly the most important truth i can say to you today is that if you belong to jesus your same-sex attraction does not define you if you belong to jesus your same-sex attraction does not define you your sin does not define you your savior does I left out a very important part of 1 Corinthians 6 for a reason, so let me finish it so you can hear this. In verse 9 it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. That if you belong to Christ, you are defined by him. That is not who you are. That is who you were. And he goes on to say, but you were washed You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That when you come to Christ, you bring your sin and your brokenness and even your disordered desires and you lay them before the cross and he washes us by the renewal of his blood, that he puts the Holy Spirit in our lives and sanctifies us, putting the old person to death and renewing us every day. He justifies us, which means that when God the Father looks upon me He doesn't see my disordered desires. He sees the perfect righteousness, spotlessness, perfect record of Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. And if you are a Christian, you're not defined by your sin, you're defined by your Savior. And if you don't know Christ, you can be. You can be defined by the goodness of the gospel, and you don't have to be defined by your sin, but that means you've got to come to him in faith, and you've got to submit all of your desires before him. I'll close with this. Rosaria Butterfield, who I think is one of the biggest gifts to the church in this arena. She was a professor at Syracuse. She taught feminist queer theory. And she was a lesbian and she met Jesus and left that lifestyle behind. You'll hear more about her next week. But she says, temptation patterns linger. But they do not rule your life anymore. And they do not define you. Temptation patterns are outsiders to your true nature in Christ. They don't co-reign with Christ, even as they remain. I've asked God, and I'll continue to ask God to take it. And for the rest of my life, his answer may be, no. That my grace is sufficient, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. But that's not my true nature. Christ is. And though they linger, Christ remains. And that truth will continue into eternity. So brothers and sisters, some of you need to take a leap of faith. Maybe that's talking to me, maybe that's talking to someone else in your group. Some of you need to take a leap and experience the goodness of fellowship and freedom that's found in the gospel. And some of you need to believe in Jesus, and you need to see that our Savior is better than anything this world has to offer, and that includes disordered desires. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves us, that saved me. That sets us apart to worship and delight in you. I'm thankful that your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in our weaknesses. We will boast all the more in our weaknesses because that is where your wonderful gospel is made beautiful. So, Heavenly Father, there are undoubtedly people in this room that are scared. There are undoubtedly people in this room that are afraid to talk. May you lift that fear and give them faith to step forward in freedom and in faith and in trusting you. And I pray if there's anyone here that is not convinced, I pray if there's anyone here that does not believe what the scriptures has to say on this, God, I pray that you would soften their heart towards truth even when it is difficult. Lord, help us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.